Well, imagine that you have worked for 50 years. You come to your 85th birthday, and it is time to celebrate your retirement. How many of you are looking forward to that day? And at your retirement party, you're sitting, reflecting on your life, your work life, and you are thinking about your accomplishments. You're thinking about your life of work. You're thinking about investments you've made. You're thinking about relationships you've had. You're thinking about projects you've done. What do you imagine it will be on that day that will give you the the most fulfillment? What will you look back on on that day and think, I am so thankful? What, What will it be throughout your life that you could point back to and say, now I know that this is a work which will last. We all want our work to matter, don't we? We all want our work to have some lasting impact on others. I'm reminded of a poem by a missionary, C.T. Studd, in which he says the following, Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. I might would change that slightly and say only what's done in Christ will last. And then what will become, what will become of our work then? Will it just be ashes in the fireplace? What will be, what will come of our accomplishments of our possessions, of our houses, of our lands. What will come of all of that on that last day, brothers and sisters? Do you want your work to last? In our passage for this morning, this theme of work comes up again and again. These words about working and doing come up again and again, are repeated throughout the passage. And it's Jesus who keeps turning the conversation to work. And in this passage, I want us to see in particular that the work which is required of us by God is also that work which is bound up in and dependent upon not our labors, not our strivings, but upon the very work of God. So I want to answer a few questions in this passage. I think that this passage answers these questions. One, What is the work we must strive for? What is that we must labor for? Two, how do we go about laboring for that? What is our work, in other words? And then three, what is the work of God which undergirds all of our work if we want it to last? In verse 25, we come to a question from the crowd, and this is kind of the outline. Each of those points matches up to a question of the crowd, and then a response from Jesus. In verse 25, we have the first question from the crowds. They've been seeking him. These are the crowds, as you remember, that have been seeking Jesus because they wanted to see some sign. They, they were amazed at the miracles that he did, and they wanted to be entertained. It wasn't a genuine faith. It was a, a, a sort of faith that wants to be wowed. So they're seeking him. They know that his disciples have left, but they can't figure out where Jesus had gone to. 
it seems just by fortune, fortunate events, boats came to the shore and many of the crowd were able to go, go across the sea to find Jesus. I don't suspect all 5,000 plus got in the boats and went across, but at least a, a certain number went across to the side seeking Jesus. And now notice their reference to him as turned from the prophet who has come into the world, the one they want to force to become king, it has turned into rabbi, teacher. It's interesting how quickly their mindset changes. And they ask him, when did you come here? Essentially, they're, they're asking, how did you get here? We, we didn't see you go across. Now, in one sense, we could say Jesus answers them throughout the rest of the, this discourse in a theological way by saying, how did I get here? I'm the bread of heaven that has come down. God is the one who has sent me here. But we see immediately he doesn't answer their question specifically. Rather, notice how Jesus answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And we might think about that and, and wonder, well, why is he saying that? I thought they weren't supposed to seek him because of the signs. Because he has rebuked those who seek him only for signs or those who tell him to show some sign. I think there are two ways, a right way and a wrong way, that you can see the signs of Jesus. The wrong way, of course, would be seeking the signs of Jesus simply to be entertained, to, to be wowed by his amazing power. But there's a, a right sense in which people could see the signs and seek Jesus. And that would be the signs bearing witness to the truth of who he has already claimed to be. It is those who have seen and heard Jesus proclaim who he is, his identity as the one sent from the Father. And then you see those signs and you say, yes, it is him. It is a confirming sign of the identity of Jesus Christ. Well, these are seeking signs merely for their own entertainment. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. There was something in it for you. you. You got fed, and so perhaps you're seeking me out again because you want more food. You just want something temporary, something that will last you through the day. And then in the next verse, verse 27, we see the heart of their motives. Jesus points out the, the, their motives by a negative command and by a positive command. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal, His seal of approval upon Jesus Christ. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do you see the, the main contrast in those commands? One food perishes, and the other endures to eternal life. The contrast there is between what is temporary and what lasts. He says, don't strive for those things which are temporary and will fail you on the last day, will fail you tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Rather, pursue those things. Strive after this thing which will endure to eternal life. 
Many of you watched the Super Bowl, was it last week, and saw the Patriots win yet again another championship. I've never been a, a Patriots fan, never been a Tom Brady fan, but after last week, I had to give it to him. He is the GOAT. I mean, you just can't deny it. It's unbelievable how successful they have been. One thing that stuck out into my mind was after the win, what all of the players and all of the team did. The Lombardi Trophy, named after Vince Lombardi, was ushered through a crowd of people as if it were an idol. And they were celebrating, they were kissing it, they were rejoicing over the victory that they had. And I wouldn't want to take away the celebration. And yet there was something to this idea that this was what they had longed for. This is what they cherished. This is what they were striving for all along. Of course, we know that the Lombardi Trophy represents something more. It represents success, arriving at your accomplishment, winning. Your name will go down in history. Tom Brady's name will go down in history for now the one who has won the most Super Bowls as a quarterback. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. Everybody runs in a race in order to do what? To win. He says, run in such a way that you will win. They do it to receive an, a, a perishable crown. And we do it to receive that which is imperishable. There's a, a stark difference between what we are striving for and what those of this world are striving for. Run to win, but what are you running for? What are you working for in your own life, in your own strivings? Are you working for recognition? Are you working for possessions? Are you working for vacations? Are you working for retirement? Many in our culture today have changed, changed the pursuit from possessions and things to experiences. Are you striving after experiences that will leave a lasting impact on you in this world? Maybe an even more important question than the what is the why. When you identify what your own temptation is to strive for in your life, why do you look on that with such longing and adoration? Why do you think that will give you what you need? See, it makes sense to pursue these earthly temporal things if this life is all we have. Does it not? If this life is all we have, you should pursue with all of your might experiences of this wonderful world. You should pursue, pursue possessions and accolades and accomplishments because this is all there is. But Jesus' words here remind us that there is not only this life, but the age to come, the life to come, eternal life. Pursue that food which endures to eternal life. There's another question that the crowd brings to him after 
this teaching in verse 28. What then must we do to be doing the works of God? They take his words at face value. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, what is that work that we must be doing that it might endure to eternal life? And he answers this. Here it is. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom God has sent. That you believe in him. Now it's interesting, uh, it's kind of ambiguous how Jesus says the work of God. Is it the work that we do for God or is it the work that God does for us? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom God has sent. But notice that this belief includes at least two things. One, it, it includes belief that Jesus is the one sent from God. This is, in the larger context of things, we're speaking about Jesus' identity and his claims, that he is the one who he claims to be, that he is the one sent from heaven, that he is the one who has been prophesied from the beginning, the one who would come and rescue God's people, the one who would be reigning as king over all his people. But it's more than believing that Jesus is the one whom God sent. It is believing in the one whom God has sent. Resting in him, putting one's trust in him, relying upon Jesus and who he is for us. In verse 35, I'm going to borrow a little bit from verse 35 to think about this idea of faith, this idea of belief. Notice Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, that's a parallel with the next passage, believes in me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He equates coming to Jesus with believing in Jesus and being fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Think about this. This is the work that must be done which results in eternal life. Here's the work you must do, Jesus says. You must believe in the Son of God. Ultimately, a work that is not a striving, not a work which is full full of drudgery and anxiety and guilt. It is a work of delighting in Jesus Christ so that you are utterly satisfied in who he is for you. Have you ever had a job where you just felt like this is so easy and fulfilling and delightful? I can't believe I get paid to do this. I was actually having a conversation like that with some other pastors recently. We were discussing praying during our sermon preparation. And one pastor voiced the idea that in some churches, the congregation might be upset if they're spending so much time praying during their sermon preparation. And we all stopped and we said, can you believe that our churches who, who love the gospel and who, who want us to be men of integrity and want us to be men of prayer, that they would set aside their money and that they would provide for our needs so that we can pray, so that we can study the word of God. 
how did I get so fortunate to be able to have a people, a church that love me and want me to pray? So they set aside money and time and resources. This is, this is a job, right? This is what Jesus is saying about the work we must do. Your work, brothers and sisters, is not to strive in drudgery. It is not to strive in your own strivings with guilt and anxiety. Your job, the work that is required of you by the Father, is to eat and receive and enjoy and delight in who Jesus Christ is for you. Your job is to sit down at a full course meal of Jesus Christ and be filled with his goodness. It is a work of delighting, brothers and sisters. How good is this? But we can turn that on its head. You do, you do that every week, more than likely. We at Christ Church Rollsville love hymns. We love new songs. We love old songs. But we know that some hymns and some new songs are better than others. There's one hymn that I look at and I think, that is terrible. <laughs> There's probably more than that. But one that I have in mind is called Satisfied with Jesus. Sounds like a wonderful name, like, yes, Satisfied with Jesus. But listen to some of the lines. I am satisfied with Jesus. He has done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. Verse 2, he is with me in my trials. Best of friends all of all is he. I can always count on Jesus. Can he always count on me? I can hear the voice of Jesus calling out so pleadingly, Go and win the lost and straying. Is he satisfied with me? And then the chorus. I am satisfied, I am satisfied, I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? Your job, brothers and sisters, is not ultimately to satisfy God with your own strivings, with your own works, with your own penitence, but to be satisfied in Jesus. This is the work of God for us that we might pursue with joy, with delight, all that Jesus is for us. But we see finally that this even this work, even this work of delight is bound up in and dependent upon the prior work of God in us. Look at the next question that the crowd asked Jesus in verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? See these terms coming up again and again about doing, about working. All right, Jesus, you've told us then that we should be working for those things which endure to eternal life, ultimately the bread which endures to eternal life. You've told us how we ought to work. We ought to believe in Jesus as the one sent from God to rest in him. But what work do you do that we might see and believe? And so Jesus actually tells them 
the work of his father and his own work for them. They point to Moses yet again, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. We already saw in this pre- pre- previously in this chapter that Jesus is the one who is incomparably greater than Moses. He is the one who feeds the 5,000. He is the one who walks across the sea as in a new exodus, the one who will rescue his people from their sins and give them salvation. And yet these people don't recognize what Jesus had just done. He just fed thousands and thousands of people, and they point back to Moses. Um, Moses gave the people bread from heaven to eat. Notice what Jesus says. No, it wasn't Moses who gave. You see, the, notice the contrast in the tense of the verbs. It wasn't Moses who gave. It was the Father who gives. The Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Sir, give us this bread always. They stumble at Jesus' words, thinking only in terms of physical things again, thinking only in terms of earthly, temporal things. Give us this bread, this true bread, which gives life to the world. So Jesus speaking plainly to them, I am the bread of life. Can you you not understand what I'm saying? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So these crowds have seen Jesus, the Son of God, the, the bread from heaven who gives life to the world, and yet they have not believed. Why is it they have not believed? Why is it they have not come to Jesus in delight and joy, being satisfied with who he is for them? Jesus answers in the next verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here we see the work of the Father giving a people to the Son who inevitably come to the Son and delight in all that He is for them. This is God's work of election in gathering a people and giving them, as we could imagine, as a gift to the Son. And what does the Son do with this gift? It says He will never, ever cast them out. Well, when a negative is stated like that in the Scriptures, we can also uh, conclude from that the positive as well. It's not just simply that He will never cast us out. It's that He is holding us tightly. It's that He is keeping us by His own strength, by His own grace. And He goes on, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. What works do you do, Jesus, to show us who you are? And Jesus points to a work past, a work present, and a work future. The work past is that God has given a people to the Son. The work present is that the Son will not lose any that the Father has given him. He will, he will keep them. He will surely not cast them out, but he will keep them from being destroyed as well. Work future, he will raise them up on the last day. Our faith in Jesus is based upon his faithfulness to the Father, to the Father's will, and their cooperation together in this wonderful work of salvation. Well, brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do, there are some gifts worth keeping and some worth regifting. Have you ever have you ever regifted a gift? Shame on you if you have. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have gotten gifts like that, especially at uh, gatherings where there's, there's this gift exchange where some people bring really good gifts and other people bring joke gifts. And you end up with this joke gift trying to take it home. You're not going to keep that. You're, you're going to toss it off. You're going to throw it in the trash. You're going to recycle it or you're going to re-gift it. Some gifts, however, are worth keeping. And I, I thought of two gifts in particular one, they're very simple gifts. One is a, a briefcase. It, it's nothing special. It doesn't look special. And one is a letter opener. Just a simple brass letter opener with a, I believe it has an anchor on the handle part of it. Those gifts wouldn't cost much money. They, they're just simple things, and yet they are so important to me because they were my grandmother's. And I got to receive them after she died. And they are so precious to me. And I can tell you, I, I w if you gave me a certain amount of money, I would not give them to you. If you tried to trade something with me that you thought was of so much worth, I would not let them go at all. They mean so much to me. And as we think about God's gift to the Son, we can be sure much, much more that the Son has treasured this gift that God has given him. That there's nothing he would give in exchange for those that he bought with his own blood. That he gave himself as the bread of life for you, brothers and sisters. Though there is no amount that he would take to give you back after he has already received you as his gift from the Father. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You belong to him. There's no amount of sin you could commit where he would no longer have you, where he would no longer receive you. He is keeping you. And if the Father has given you to his Son, he will never cast you out and he will never lose you. He will raise you up on the last day. Is that good news or what, brothers and sisters? The work which God requires of us is that we pursue that thing which will endure to eternal life. And that work is by delighting in who, who Jesus is for us. 
And that work of delighting and being satisfied with all that Jesus is for us is undergirded and dependent on his gracious work to us. His gracious work for us in giving us to the Son. In him holding us firmly in his hands, he will never let go. And in that thought that he will raise us up on the last day. What do you have that you have not received? What can you do that is not first undergirded and grounded in his work for you, brothers and sisters? And now we go out into the world doing what Gary said. Caring for those in need. Nurturing those who are hopeless and helpless. Preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, crucified for sinners and resurrected from the dead. We do all these things not because we think that we are striving after some sort of accomplishment before God, not because we think that we are doing something of ultimate worth on our own, but because these works of ours are being done in God. These these are the works of God in His Holy Spirit being done and worked out through us. So then, brothers and sisters, what are you striving for in this life? How are you going about your work? In your own efforts, in your own strength? Are you delighting in Jesus? May it be that we are striving by His grace in us, knowing that it is by His work that we have been saved and that we live and will persevere and will be raised up on the last day. Let's pray together.